Let us never forget, the greatest untapped market for American enterprise is right here in America. When I hear the term centrist Democrat, I immediately think of Bill Clinton. But the government can only do so much. The private sector has to provide most of these jobs. And the 90s era brand of politics that saw a lip-biting Democratic president declare an end to big government and bow to conservative pressure on something like gay marriage. Back to Bill Clinton here, writing this opinion piece in the Washington Post. Here he is. I mean, how often do you have a president who is basically asking the Supreme Court to strike down a law that he signed, the Defensive Marriage Act? I also think back to 2006, when the Democratic political machine run by Rahm Emanuel led Democrats to a House majority, thanks to pro-gun and anti-abortion politicians like Jason Altmaier in Pennsylvania. And that wave was driven by independent voters, an 18-point swing in independence. And the first thing we encountered in Washington was people from the far-left Democratic side saying, put this idea of bipartisanship to the side. That's not why you're here. You're here to push the Democratic agenda. Modern-day centrists on the left remember those things, too. And they're adamant that in the year 2018, that's not who they are anymore. Which is all well and good, but with such vocal opposition, even within their own party, now they just need to convince everyone else of that. There is no way that folks on the center left are going to be able to compete with folks on the far left if what we have on offer sounds old or small. It's just not going to work. That's Lene Erickson, a vice president for social policy and politics at the center left think tank Third Way. People want something big. They don't want triangulation. They don't want incrementalism. They want something that sounds new and big. And so I think that's the challenge that moderate Democrats or those on the center left or even mainstream Democrats who don't want to see the Bernie wing take over the party have in front of them. It can't sound small ball. So that's I'd call Lene a moderate Democrat, but she prefers opportunity Democrat a nod to the top-to-bottom rebranding strategy her group rolled out earlier this year. What the hell did Democrats miss? To beat Trump and Trumpism in D.C. and state houses, Democrats must offer a compelling and modern alternative vision in which Democrats offer everyone, everywhere, the opportunity to earn a good life. In this episode, we'll also talk to quote-unquote pragmatic progressive Jim Himes, a Connecticut congressman. You know, uh, moderates get uh, pointed at as the, you know, Democrat light or even, you know, the Republican wing of the Democratic Party. That is, I think, a poisonous thing. What they both have in common is offering a path forward for Democrats that's different than the ideas you've heard so far in this series. One with big ideas, but less government involvement. It's an approach they believe is key to winning moderate voters. Heck, it's an approach Lene believes is key to saving capitalism itself. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders, they've said capitalism is immendably broken. It's not something that we're going to be able to fix. And we don't think that's true. You've heard in our first two episodes here just how much energy and momentum there is right now among unapologetic liberal activists. The loud voices often get the most attention, and there are folks who are very, very loud on the far left. Lene doesn't dispute that in the age of such vitriolic polarization, being moderate might be the most revolutionary thing you can do. But she came to our studio recently to lay out a vision ground on what she believes is reality, and to argue that despite the hype, her wing of the party has a lot more supporters and has had a lot more success than most people realize. 
This is the Democrats' way back, according to the moderates. We want to be a nation that allows improved and expanded Medicare for all. We've already heard how much progressives want to change and have already changed the Democratic Party. Even the kinds of candidates moderate Democrats now claim as their own are far more to the left than they were even 10 years ago. Candidates like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ayanna Presley have received lots of attention. We are a nation that will not stop until every child is born with the opportunity to go to college or trade school free of cost. But when you take a hard look at the winners in most House primaries this year, many of them sound like people who share Lene's viewpoint. That includes new congresswomen like Chrissy Houlihan from Pennsylvania. I'm Chrissy Houlihan, and Washington has turned our country upside down. With so much anger and partisanship, Congress is getting nothing done. Or Mickey Sherrill from New Jersey. We need to put Congress to the test. Stop the partisan politics and get the job done. There are dozens more nominees at the state and national level from 2018 who also come to mind. You know, the Virginia gubernatorial race is a great example. Bernie Sanders endorsed Tom Periello. There was a lot of churn on the left. They were doing great fundraisers for Tom Periello, and Tom Periello is a great guy. But Tom Periello was running on a very Bernie Sanders agenda in a purple state, and Ralph Northam came through and pretty much walloped him in that primary. And that's because although you have some of the folks that are the loudest supporting that more far-left agenda, when you actually ask Democratic voters over and over again, they're picking the folks that are offering an economic vision of opportunity, not this kind of democratic socialism. Okay, so clearly these Democrats have a better claim to relevancy than you might have thought. Lene and a host of Democratic leaders gathered in July at a summit in Columbus, Ohio, to lay out their agenda. So that's what we're going to explore here in Columbus. What it could mean if we became opportunity Democrats. That summit included Democratic lawmakers like Tim Ryan of Ohio, former New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu, and Delaware Senator Chris Coons. But what are the actual tangible policies that they support? So let's talk about the agenda you did roll out. I mean, give us, if you could, a few policies that you think would explain to the the listener where you're coming from. Well, I think on healthcare, there's a really obvious difference. I think there is a value that we're all trying to get to. The outcome is very shared. That all of us within the progressive coalition want to see universal coverage, want to see every person have affordable, accessible healthcare. But rather than throwing it out and requiring everyone who has private insurance right now to start over with a single government plan, we think we need to expand upon the ACA to reduce costs and expand coverage. So that's one big cleave between the far left and the mainstream of the Democratic Party on health care. But we put out a lot of other new ideas that we think could be really helpful to folks going forward. One of my favorite is the idea of creating universal pension. So right now, most people don't have private pension savings or retirement savings beyond Social Security. Of low-income people, only one in 10 do. And in the broader population, it's about 50%. 
yet we know that Social Security is not going to be sufficient for people to live a comfortable life in retirement. People are living longer, and they're going to need to take care of themselves and their families in old age. So what if we had a mandatory contribution from employers of 50 cents an hour for every hour you work? We have a minimum wage. Why don't we have a minimum pension? It would go into a fund that's similar to what the government employees have right now with really, really low rates and fees. And every single person would, by the end of their career, then have a pot of money that was about equal to at least what Social Security would provide them on top of Social Security so that they can make sure that they have you know, a really comfortable life. We aren't going to be in jobs for 30, 40 years anymore. Mm-hmm. My dad has a clock hanging on the wall from his service at an employer that he worked for for 30 years. That is not going to be my experience. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to get beyond this idea of hanging on to the current retirement systems that we've put in place and think about what does it mean when people have an average of 11 jobs over their lifetime? How can we make sure that they can provide for themselves in retirement in a way that's portable over that career? So what would you say to a critic who would argue from the left that well, instead of doing this and, and adding an extra layer, why don't we just expand Social Security? We're in favor of expanding Social Security for people who are on the low end of the income spectrum. The problem we have with some of the proposals that the far left has put out is that that's not what they do. They expand it for everyone. And we don't think that we should be spending that money to give Warren Buffett more Social Security benefits, or frankly, to give someone like me more Social Security benefits. We really think that we should focus those benefits on the folks that are not going to have the retirement savings and not going to be able to provide for themselves, and that we shouldn't do something that's going to end up being regressive with that much money. Our agenda really There's one more thing I wanted to ask Lene about, which I think is important not just for the new moderate wing of the Democratic Party, but for the Democratic Party as a whole. Traditionally, moderate Democrats have told their fellow party members to compromise on social issues. In the 90s, that would have been guns. In the aughts, baby gay marriage. But that is very much not what Lene is asking for. Personally, I consider myself an opportunity Democrat because I think that folks in my generation don't really identify with the term moderate or centrist in a way that maybe folks did in the 1990s. Why is that, you think? To me, the word centrist, it really implicates a version of politics that's very focused on compromise on social issues in a way that I don't feel we need to anymore. You know, it's about LGBT issues or abortion or other things that folks have a difference of opinion and values on. And I think the divide in the party has really changed to a point where most of those issues, Democrats are aligned across the entire spectrum. And the real divide now is on how we tackle our economic problems. I mean, that's a a pretty big statement just right up front, though that the more moderate or the opportunity wing, it's not about social issues anymore. Because I think you're right. I think people still think, well, okay, this is a part of the party that thinks we need to run pro-life candidates. That's not the case. 
Yeah, I think there's a there's a very different divide that's now happening, and um, that doesn't mean that center-left Democrat thinks that no one should be allowed to be a Democrat or a Democratic voter if they have a difference of opinion on social issues. I don't think that we want to um, cleanse the party of everyone who disagrees on any given topic, but I do think that there's no need to actively recruit people that are, for example, squishy on LGBT issues or pro-life in order to win voters in those districts. That's not the way to the heart of the modern and independent voters that are there. Why has Amy mentioned how this was in vogue in the 90s and even a little bit of the aughts? Um, If you remember the last time uh, Democrats took the House, Rahm Emanuel famously recruited some pro-life, pro-gun candidates and all that. Why has that changed now this decade? I think there's a couple of reasons, but the country has really shifted on a lot of these issues attitudinally, and the younger generations have shifted in how they think about it. And a lot of the candidates that are running now are from that younger generation. The way they talk about these issues is very authentic to who they are. And it's not dismissive of people who disagree with them on it, but they don't feel the need to be as constrained and careful and poll tested as maybe folks did maybe even 10 years ago. On things like guns, for example, we're seeing folks like Pat Toomey credit his win in Pennsylvania to the fact that he could appeal to suburban women voters on guns and Kelly Ayotte, you know, going down in part because she opposed background check. So the politics of specifically on guns and on LGBT issues have shifted in a major way and given folks more room to, you know, run in a redder or purple place and talk authentically about what they believe on those issues, as long as they're not being dismissive of every single person who disagrees with them. I think that now, look, Lene's vision for the party still faces some real hurdles. She wants to talk about big ideas, and well, it's harder to get bigger than single-payer healthcare or a federal jobs guarantee. Third Way isn't fighting for those things. And the moderates on the left know that their party has to win over young voters of color, lest it be seen as supporting the ideas of old white men. But they insist their point of view has to be preserved if Democrats want to keep winning in places other than the coast. It is certainly true that progressive younger candidates are winning in certain areas, and that's not true everywhere, and and that's sort of one of the articles of faith of those of us who come from purple districts. That's where congressmen like Jim Himes come in. Um, There is one set of policy recommendations and a way of speaking that probably plays very well in our more liberal parts of the country, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in Ann Arbor, in Berkeley, in New York City. That's not the set of uh, tools, that's not the set of policies that necessarily plays in rural Illinois or even rural Connecticut. So Hines is a five-term Democratic representative from Connecticut and the chairman of the New Dems. We spoke with him at his office in the Capitol. Well, the New Democrats uh, are a very policy-oriented, innovative, forward-thinking group of people. Um, We like to call ourselves uh, pragmatic progressives. And maybe that pragmatism comes from the fact that most of us come from purple districts. And what I mean by that is when you come from a district that has as many Republicans as Democrats, you got to listen to your Republicans. And as in my district, you may have more independence than you have of one uh, particular political 
party. So in virtue of being in these purple districts where in order to win elections, we need to persuade independents and maybe even get a few Republicans, it means we're listening to just about everybody. That doesn't mean we're adopting what they believe, but we're listening to everybody. And uh, and we need to appeal to groups beyond our primary voters. Naming conventions aside, here's what Himes believes the party needs to do. We need to resist the temptation of having zero-sum fights within the party. And look, we're, we're political people, so we like to win. We are competitive. But again, it's like a fractious family. We've got to have the debate. We should have the debate, um, but then we need to come together. We need to support each other. We need to make sure that we don't do something, you know, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that would hurt somebody in the West. Uh, here, another example, we are pretty adamant in this party about reform of our gun culture, of uh, finding ways to, you know, do away with the 35,000 or so Americans who die every single year as a result and of gun and violence. And you obviously represent a district in Connecticut. Exactly. I, my, my house is 30 miles from Sandy Hook Elementary School. We need to make proposals and put forward ideas in ways that don't play into the NRA's desire to have skeptical Americans regard us as liberal coastal elite gun grabbers. And if we're not careful, we can play into their narrative. When, when I hear you talk and you talk about being able to win in a place like Minnesota, you know, there, there seems to be this a difference. When I talk to a lot of liberals, it's all about firing up the base. When the, the two sides talk, they're thinking about different voters who they need to try to win over. There are two parties in the United States of America, two, mm-hmm. two meaningful parties, and there's 325 million people in this country. When you're going to fit 325 million people into two parties, not 20 parties, but two parties, The party that wins will be the party that most gracefully handles its internal tensions. Look at the Republicans today. The Republicans are the tail wagging the dog. The Freedom Caucus is preventing the larger Republican uh, caucus. And quite frankly, lately, the Trump wing of the Republican Party is now preventing the Republican Party from being what the Republican Party has always been. So it cannot be... Um, Do we fire up the base or do we persuade? A winning party does both and doesn't allow doing one of those things to damage the other. So again, uh, a terrible mistake to think of that as our choice. The truth is, if we win, it will be when we both fire up our base and when we persuade. Example at hand, Barack Obama. And I hear a lot of people from your part of the party talk about how there needs to be a big tent. We need to welcome a lot of different viewpoints. Do you think that a lot of liberals see it that way? Because when I hear them talk, I hear a little bit more, we need to commit to how we see politics or the Democratic Party is going to continue to wither on the vine. I'm just not as sure that there is interest in a big tent party. I I don't want to comment or speculate on what they're interested in. Mm -hmm. Uh, My own experience is that my colleagues in Congress, uh, my most progressive colleagues, really understand the math. They really understand because, like me, they've been in a majority. And that majority happened to include some very, very conservative Democrats. The Blue Dog Coalition used Mm -hmm. to be really big in uh, 2009. Today it is very small, and lo and behold, we're in the minority. So I think inside, people get it. The practitioners understand that politics and winning is about addition. I do think that on the outside, um, you know, our more ideologically oriented philosophers, you know, people who haven't actually looked at exactly at what a majority looks like, um, 
there are calls for purity. Again, people should, we should respect intellectual diversity within the party. We should celebrate it and mm -hmm. uh, we should do the hard work of making sure that the final answer is the answer that, that allows us to be in the majority. Look, we can't do anything if we're in the minority in the House. It becomes, what we do becomes an academic uh, exercise. Did you catch that part about Barack Obama? Interesting, right? Especially after you heard Jess Morales work at her last episode talk about how the next step the party needs to take are very much about breaking with Obama's legacy. We were really successful in electing President Obama two times, which means that for the last decade, the sort of Obama wing of the party has been moving an agenda and moving candidates under the guise of Barack Obama as an individual, not under the Democratic Party or even sort of like the left writ large. It's a huge problem. A lot of center-left Democrats, I mean, for a guy who was kind of seen as the liberal candidate, quote-unquote, in 2008, I feel like a lot of center-left Democrats really like Barack Obama and still point to him as an example for what the party can be. Does that surprise you at all? Um, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, anytime you win the way Barack Obama won, how, how can you not point to that as an example? Now, it's a mistake to overgeneralize. Barack Obama, as the first African-American president, was obviously, by definition, a unique historical figure. And he had different talents than Bill Clinton, but he had talents that were really off the charts in terms mm -hmm. of oratory and, and you know, the ability to cause Americans to aspire rather than to fear. Um, so you can generalize too far away from the person that was Barack Obama, but he's just a great example of somebody who did both and, mm -hmm. and won big time as a result. Check in tomorrow for part four of The Way Back. They just don't think the Democratic Party is perhaps working hard enough or really invested in Latino outreach. All about the Democrats' troubles with minority outreach. And that's a very critical constituency that the Democrats would need to mobilize and engage and not just take for granted. Thanks very much to Lene Erickson and Congressman Jim Himes for joining me here. And thanks to Jordan Marie Smith and Davin Coburn for producing this special episode of Beyond the Bubble. Leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Alex Rorty, and you can reach me anytime at arorty at mcclatchydc.com. That's A-R-O-A-R-T-Y at mcclatchydc.com. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>